Navigation ship. Navigation ship. Navigating the trials and tribulations of race, dating, travel, trauma, and healing as young conscious black women. Hey, it's Stephanie. Hey, it's Ashley. And today we are on our second part of our two-part episode, um, the spaces in which we occupy or navigating the spaces in which we occupy. Um, we are covering Stephanie and her space or her occupying the space in academia and um, talking about her experiences and a career and her values. But first, how are you, Stephanie? Um, I'm good. I've, um, my night owl, um, <laughs> ability to stay up in all hours of, of the night has gone into overdrive. So I'm currently trying to reset my body to, you know, normal working hours and sleeping hours. <laughs> but, um, overall I'm, I'm pretty good. Yeah. How about you, Ashley? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Um, I had a very interesting night out. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> with a friend of a friend of a friend. Um, I was supposed to meet the friend of a friend who's the person's boyfriend, but he was too drunk to come. So oh. <laughs> it was an interesting night <laughs> with a stranger. But <laughs> yeah, it was really good. Well, sounds exciting and a bit different. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so did you want me to get into the episode? Yeah, let's do that. So today we are getting into Stephanie. So I guess the first question that I want to start out with is before you decided to go and pursue um, that your PhD and get in further into the academic space, what was your career? Okay, well, just before I decided to go back um, to my studies, I was the editor for a journal. And yeah, I really enjoyed that aspect of, of my role. I mean, it utilized my creative side, my arts and my design skills. Um, but also being an editor was quite unexpected for me because I never really had, <laughs> I never had any editorial experience in that sense. But I uh, did very well in the role and I managed to increase engagement by 170% during my term. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, which is, it was insane. Yeah. <laughs> so, and um, which is very unexpected. So but I, I had. <laughs> It meant I had a quite a good knack at being an editor. I was an editor in, in Sydney, so moving to a new place, I tried new things and I was exposed to different opportunities. But yeah, the role didn't really fully align well with me in the sense that the overall topic was about building economics and it's not a background mm-hmm. I have an avid interest in. Um, but I mean, that's probably mm-hmm. why the engagement rose because I was really interested in hearing the insights from people who are in in that you know area and looking at it from a different perspective. But I also published the very first women-centered edition. Um, but yeah, my background before I was an editor was um, around gardening engagement, surrounding women, our bodies, self self-image, social justice, marginalization, um, and I had opportunities to work with a lot of people from different backgrounds from political officials to local girls in my community um yeah so it's yeah so I guess my before into my studies I was an editor I guess for a couple of years well definitely I was I didn't guess it but <laughs> yeah and then but, <laughs> and then before that I was uh, a lot of doing a lot of campaign work and a lot of um different work around self self-esteem bodies and women things like that yeah and I guess like from there, um, what made you decide to further your studies? Um, 
I really wanted to try and make sense of a lot of questions that arose when I went traveling. And yeah, like I really wanted to, in a sense, articulate a lot of my political frustrations and to channel my political frustrations. I'm someone who likes to think and understand before I speak and take action on something. Um, and there was a lot that I didn't really know or, or really understand. Like I didn't really know what white supremacy meant <laughs> um, or mm. really had or had I ever, I've never really heard of intersectionality and I really wanted to understand and was interested in the frameworks in which I existed in like the political foundations of Western society um, and I had a lot of questions I mean during my time in Japan you know I went to a place called Hiroshima and it's a place where there was a, a mm-hmm. nuclear bomb w- was dropped and I was in the, the museum there and you walk around and you see the aftermath of you know, such, you know, um, an event at a time. And there was this picture of these these white men in the room who made mm-hmm. the decision to to drop this bomb, you know. And yeah. I was thinking uh, to myself, like, what gave these men, like, this white and this power to make such a decision, you know? I'm not going to get mm-hmm. into the ins and outs of, you know, whether it was right or wrong and the war and all that kind of stuff because things happened on both sides. But, I mean... I was just, just like very much like, how do these people have this power that they can decide this this fate of all these people, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And the same thing happened again when I was in Rio. I was being shown around by a local. And I remember going to this place where I was overlooking the most beautiful view in Rio. I love my time in Rio. I was looking over this most beautiful view in Rio. And I remember it was around, I think, two o'clock. And I remembered hearing fireworks. And I was like who's putting off fireworks at this time <laughs> like it's crazy why should we put a fireworks around two o'clock in the afternoon and the guy goes to me stephanie that's not fireworks that's gunshots and i was like what mm-hmm. um and i was so privileged you know to never know what some gunshots actually sound like in real life um yeah. and what was happening was that there was i was near like an area um and there was you know a, he said it's either like you know um, drug lords fighting and, and, and another drug lords or you know different g- gangs fighting each other or the police have gone into that area and all this kind of mm-hmm. things and I was just like what is the social political dynamics of that area like why you know are certain things happening within the spaces that I'm moving in and trying mm-hmm. to understand and make sense of you know my my space spaces that I moved in when I was traveling so yeah I guess I had, I had a lot of questions basically <laughs> and um <laughs> I really wanted to really channel those, but also from a career perspective, I really wanted to enrich my interests, enrich my my knowledge so that I can advance forward with social justice efforts in a considered way, yeah. And did you feel like um, your masters in the Netherlands, you know, answered those questions or do you, do you still have questions? Um, I feel like my time during my master experience was really, you know, enriching. I really grew in my political articulation and understanding. Like I explored things like justice, what is justice, what is freedom, what does democracy mean, what does participation mean? And all these things are really important to me in terms of understanding the foundations of the society that I exist and live and move in. Um, I also got exposed to a lot of uh, critical ways of analysis 
which was uh, which was really interesting for me, like understanding post-colonialism, understanding, you know, white supremacy, understanding um, like a feminist perspective on things and seeing how a different perspective can bring forward different insights. Um, so it was really a, a really good time, but I also learned that I had to work double hard. I mean, if I really wanted to look at things critically, I had to first of all look at the mainstream um, and then I had to dig a bit deeper to get to the critical uh, insights, the critical papers. Um, and if I wanted to centre them, I had to work extra hard to make sure that they, that they remain centred within my papers and things like that. So yeah, it was definitely was um, enriching time in terms of my political inquiries <laughs> but you know on a personal level you know on a personal level it was quite confronting being within that space and being within academia to be honest yeah can you expand on that experience I mean I was based in the southernest part of Netherlands uh, a place where they still have black peat which is a season where they blackface. <laughs> um, oh my god! <laughs> and, That's so ridiculous. Exactly. Um, and I mean, I experienced a lot of traumatizing experiences within um, my time there because we obviously both spoken about our times in Sydney and mm-hmm. how traumatic that was. <laughs> and yeah. I honestly thought to myself that. I'm moving now from Sydney and I'm going back to Europe and things are going to be okay mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's going to be better for me. Um, and that was not, it was better in the sense that I was close to my family. I could jump on, you know, a train or plane, whatever, and go back and see or coach and go back and see my family in London whenever I, I really wanted to, um, you know, all things allowed. <laughs> I mean, when I was in Sydney, you know, you, you couldn't go anywhere really. You just stuck there. So, <laughs> so there was no like kind of escapism. But I mean, whilst I was in the Netherlands, I had issues. I had issues finding housing. I had issues with the Eurocentric reality of academia. I had issues with object objectification from the men there. I was near the borders of Belgium and Germany, so I had to deal with all three sets of guys, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, I had issues with being underpaid. Um, but I guess for me, the real breaking point for me during my time there was when I was undergraded significantly in one of my major papers, and that that was a very hard time for me. But, yeah, my, yeah it wasn't, on a very personal level, it was a very uh, trying time but it was something that I wanted to do and I made a lot of sacrifices in order to go back to education, you know? I think, um, yeah, it was really interesting your experiences because, you know, when, especially when you go from a place that is extremely, (laughs) I mean, um, yeah, it's pretty extremely racist. I mean, it's not really overt racism. It's more covert racism, but Mm. um, it's, it the it's pretty clear who's considered white there who's considered what is considered the norm there in Australia yeah. and they're very direct about telling you that yeah um, to going <laughs> from a place where you thought you'd be safe uh and it wasn't safe at all um yeah. and you you did speak about sort of um your one of your major papers and I kind of wanted to get into the subject matter of that can you give some, can you expound a little bit on 
your thesis around inclusion and sort of the research you found, because I found it really interesting what you've said before to me personally. And I think you've said on this podcast, inclusion is not being inclusive, inclusive, but that the marginalized group is included in being a part of sort of white culture. Um, So it's not really inclusive. It's like, oh, you're performing in a way that's, you know, okay for white whiteness. So that's why we're including you. Um, Can you expound on that? Yeah, so I unpack a lot in my thesis, which is about 23,000 words. (laughs) Um, But uh, (laughs) what I discussed in my master paper is a critical look at at inclusion. So inclusion has been presented to me as a concept above reproach because, of course, inclusion is is good. Of course, it's something we in progressive Mm -hmm. circles want more of, and it's also become this buzzword in social and political discourse for institutions, organizations, and policymakers to make use of, to be a project that that they're going to do something to work towards a society that works for all. But inclusion, it's common Mm -hmm. sense use, uh, can instead of being part of solution, can further feed the issues that it seeks or proclaims to address. So what you spoke about uh, just now is this idea of the common sense uh, understanding of inclusion, which basically is thinking that inclusion within itself is something that's good that if we just include people in something or include people who are deemed to be outside or in need of inclusion that the very nature of including them is going to be a solution to exclusion um which basically completely disregards the reason why people um oppressed groups are excluded within the first place um just adding them mm-hmm. to the to a structure or to a process that has generated their exclusion and isn't going to really address the issue so for instance um, if we go back to the paper that i was i was working on i was within a course on you know politics and society i wanted to write you can write about anything you wanted to write about but I needed to, you know, stick to, you know, the frameworks that suits a very specific perspective that validates a very specific, mm-hmm. you know, way of working and a way of doing something and rewards that way of working mm-hmm. and the way of doing something, which then results in, you know, marginalized groups moving from outside uh, of, you know, whatever the, the structures and the systems to be marginalized within the structures and and the systems. So what we see a lot is that Mm -hmm. people are not included in in the decision-making roles or in spaces where they can actually exercise power um, over over their lives. Mm -hmm. And also there's, what also inclusion often misses out is that organizations and structures within themselves are gendered, Um, they are classist, they are ableist, uh, they are racialized. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of that is not really mm-hmm. broken down and it's not really explored. Um, and to create an inclusive space, you really need to be more um, mindful of, uh, you know, the historical makeup and the political makeup of a space um, to actually break down the classist, ableist, gendered, racial uh, spaces that we move in. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And we don't hear that enough, um, I think because we hear these buzzwords, inclusion, diversity, but it's, you know, diversity and inclusion as it um, is acceptable um, to, you know, the dominant culture, which is white, male, cisgendered, and heterosexual. Um, So 
and rich as well. Yeah. So <laughs> I think that's really interesting that we hear it from a different perspective um, because I think you put, you articulate what we feel is the case yeah. um, very well. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see how that progresses. Going to that in sort of a bad segue, um, <laughs> Why, why did you decide to pursue your PhD? There's so many different angles I can go into to answer this question because for most part of my life, I didn't even know what a PhD was. I didn't even, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to even want to pursue one. I mean, even when I started my master's, I was never thinking about going and doing a PhD. Um, even going yeah. back to academia was was quite confronting for me because I vowed at the end of my bachelor's that I'm never going back <laughs> to academia again because <laughs> um, I, I found it very you know exclude excluding like a very you know not very good space for me to be in um, mm-hmm. so I found it very hard to move in that spaces and, and you know feel free within those spaces um, so my desire to go and do a PhD really stems from the the kind of the stuff that I really enjoyed about my time um, during my master's which is being able to look at things and take a considered approach to things to look at the root causes of issues to really draw on different sides of the argumentation and to when you locate those critical discussions that really draw on different different perspectives that have been left out of academia is so so enriching to to draw on those discussions and uh, really enriching for me on a personal level but also on a political level and I really wanted to continue diving into that and continue going into that which I'm I'm very much passionate and enjoy you know looking at things critically uh, looking at social and political discussions and really adding a fresh perspective um but yeah my PhD particularly is to really continue on that journey but bring into light a different viewpoint which is from a black woman perspective obviously we're not all the same not all black women are the same obviously but I mean uh you know historical kind of background and groupings has placed us in the interlocking of oppression in terms of being a woman and being black and that does not really get spoken about enough or at all and especially within Europe itself and you spoke about you know um you asked me the question about whether or not I you know want to be in this place to actually you know place myself within this place and have have a space within that place and that is one part of it I guess there's three main parts of it yeah one of it is to be able to center black women in academia um historically and traditionally our bodies have been used in scientific research and not our minds um Mm -hmm. And I really want to contribute to the growing uh, body of work that centers black women as knowledge knowledge holders. Um, and mm-hmm. by being a black woman, I am political in a sense. My mm-hmm. just being somewhere, I've realized I am political in that sense by taking up space. I'm you know I'm politically taking up space, but I also yeah. want to turn my eyes inward on Europe itself. So mm-hmm. illuminating its colonial history and its post-colonial lived reality. Um, as until these things are made visible, it's really hard to start to actually dismantle a lot of the issues that have come together due to colonialism. And thirdly, I just want to continue making sense of my lived reality and help other women like me to make sense of it too. Um, and 
so often, you know, when in isolation, like you spoke about this before in the, you know, the, in the last episode, that we can think our experiences are singular, that we are the only one, that maybe if I change X, Y, Z about myself, that this will go away, that maybe we're going crazy. And I really want to de-isolate those accounts to overcome the issues we encounter as black women when we suffer in isolation. And so often we are left out of the discourse on race, we're left out in the discourse on gender, and there's not much space to make sense of our lived accounts, especially within Europe. So that's really where I fit in. Um, well, I fit in quite a lot because <laughs> in a sense, mm-hmm. not many people are speaking about these things. And in academia, you're supposed to fill in the gaps. You're supposed to find out what hasn't been discovered yet, what what hasn't really been explored, uh, uh, what angles can we take, how can we look at things differently. Um, and this is definitely an area that hasn't that is completely underexplored. Um, and there's limited resources to support such work, really. Yeah, I think that's really powerful what you said and why you're pursuing your PhD. These things, like I've said before, but vocalizing them um, and articulating them in a way that is, you know, in the high academic space is really important because that's when... I mean, it's unfortunate, but that's when people pay attention, um, when they have a book, when they can see it, when they know the history, when we have all the research. Um, It's unfortunate that we have to go through these, you know, extreme measures to get a voice um, when people can just kind of show up in their own skin and get a voice. But um, yeah, I think it's very (laughs) important either way. Um, And I kind of want to understand, because I don't think it's spoken about enough, about how little race and social justice is spoken about in European literature. Could you give historical background on that or um, info that you learned on your studies about that to explain that lack? Well, that's a very big question. <laughs> and that could almost be a paper in itself, and I obviously want to do that, do that justice. <laughs> But there is, um, <laughs> but there is something that um, I think you know is worth sharing within this discussion now, and um, which I find quite, I don't know, quite illuminating, I guess, for me um, during my time in the Netherlands, and also being away from the UK, you kind of see things a bit more clearly. So, for instance, one thing I like to focus in on, I guess, in response to this question, is education and being educated about one's national history. Um, we are not taught about colonial history in schools here. Well, I mean, nothing beyond the grand, very, the grand narrative. There's this narrative in history that race issues ended with the end of like the slavery acts and the introduction of anti-discrimination laws and that Europe is this inclusive space. Like the motto of the EU is united in diversity. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, so (laughs) exactly, exactly. So, um, and I remember having these conversations, I guess, like there was this fellow student on my course uh, in one of the courses that I was doing and she grew up in Belgium and, you know, she was speaking about Congo and different things. And she was like, I've never been told about Belgium's colonial history, never. And um, she was doing this study and she was going through, you know, different educational things that they use in schools and the curriculum. And she was diving into that to see what is being taught, you know. And that's the same thing in the Netherlands. You know, I spoke at the beginning about Black Pete this season where they blackface. 
and there's this documentary where they dive into that a bit more deeper and this person goes around and interviews different citizens and they were really struggling to make the connection towards black facing and the history the colonial history of the netherlands there's a lot you know there's there's um, some key people like gloria gloria Recker who explores you know this you know 400 years of dutch colonial rule versus the dominant narrative of netherlands as this gentle and ethical nation and it's this whole like white innocence that you know racism doesn't really aside here um and it's a real backlash you know to even speak about racism in, in certain countries which, which has sold this narrative this grand narrative that we're inclusive and that we you know don't discriminate based on this and blah, 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 you know and not actually wanting to talk about race um and actually diving into literature and actually you know bringing up research that actually exposes that and the same thing we have in the UK like there's this whole imperialistic nostalgia to bring back the glory days of the empire which conflicts with the reality of what the empire meant and its effects across the globe um so yeah there's like the academia is a very exclusive space and it's purposely exclusive what i mean by that is that like it was you know the only people who really had the privilege to go into further education was white males from a very privileged background and they spoke about things that affected their life you know (laughs) um and looked at things from a viewpoint from their own viewpoint because that's why would they not do that you know um and that is, you know, when you go into academia, you are drawing on literature that goes, that draws from that classical space and really, you know, draws and builds on from that. And it takes a lot of work to actually look at something from a different perspective and have the same level of depth and argumentation that has been built over the years from, from the classical texts. So it's, Within Europe, yeah, there's a lot of uh, racism and like the idea of white supremacy, uh, you know, racial, you know, issues. Kind of the, a lot, a lot of the literature stems from America, and a lot of people are trying to build off the American literature when they talk about race, or when they yeah talk about racism, it does builds very much from the male, the male experience and the male perspective. So a lot of you know focus on Europe gets left out. A lot of focus on women also gets left out. Um, yeah, so it's not really explored fully, so to say. I guess with all of that, you pursuing your PhD, amplifying Black voices, amplifying, you know, the realities of inclusion and diversity and social justice within the Europe space. Why did you decide to do this podcast? Um, well... It's very much personal reasons why I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> um, I <laughs> I generally want to continue to help myself and help other women like me. Like life is hard, but it's even harder. I feel when you feel like there's something wrong with you, like you're going crazy, like you know you're suffering things in isolation. And it's nice to know that you're not the only one. <laughs> so um, I generally believe there is great strength when we come together and we share and we speak and we make sense of things, or at least we try to. Um, and my conversations with you and Ashley and my conversations with other women has really helped me a lot. But as as we've both spoken about, they're often done in isolation. And this podcast, my PhD, is all a process of de-isolate, de-isolating those discussions, which I think can be really helpful. 
Um, but yeah, the podcast specifically is a personal space for you and for me to continue to make sense of our lived reality and to join other women who want to do that with us. Um, that sums up. <laughs> yeah, I I really love that because I feel like we're on the same page on that, um, which is really great um, to de-isolate, you know, our voices and to understand what the hell is going on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And also knowing, like, obviously I know you and, you know, people like, obviously your family and friends know you, but for the listeners, is there anything that you wish people would know about you to understand you more? Um, interesting question. <laughs> um, I guess one thing is that I, I care a lot, um, I care a lot about those in my life. Um, I only want the best for them. I often think about them first before I think of me. And it's been a long process of learning to think of myself first and really think about what it is that I want. I mean, obviously the, the quality of care is really important, especially in the work that I've done in terms of being a mentor for a good number of years and an advocate for change and caring about others and actually listening to them. Is a skill needed you know, to ensure policies actually reflect the needs of people? But I mean, I think it's really important to learn to actually think about yourself. And this has been a pretty recent process, you know, I mean, I'm talking about in the last two to three years of actually learning to think about myself. So I guess now I'm in like this space where I need to channel that quality of care that I have, but in a way that is um, healthy for me. Whatever I work on, <laughs> actually notice this whatever I do um I put my all into it I put all my mm -hmm. energy all my heart everything into it like um uh, so for me I would want to channel those energies and those efforts into doing something with my life that that builds from a, a place of care care for others also care for myself so that it remains healthy and sustainable and mm -hmm. something that I can commit to for the long term yeah and I want to talk about well your values um what are they um first of all um I guess my core values are three three main things and uh, one of them is authenticity um mm. so being genuine being true being true to who you are so Ensuring that your internal and, and external self actually align. Um, and I guess as a child, you, you know, are the product of your parents. Um, <laughs> I mean, and also you're the product of the people who have a strong influence in your life, whether that's from school or from church or whatever friends you have, you know, you're shaped by that. And it comes a point in your life where you need to figure out things for yourself and make your own mind up about what are your principles and what are your values. Um, so for me, I've been on this journey of like, just making sure that, you know, what it is that I do and how I live my life aligns with me and, and what it is that I think. And that's this process of, you know, being your authentic self um, and mm. not being restricted or trying mm. to be someone else or match up to somebody else's idea of who you are, who they think you should be. And it really pains me <laughs> 
when people are not true so when they say mm-hmm. so when what mm-hmm. they say doesn't match up with what they do when they you know force advertisement they're superficial they're ingenuine I'm really allergic to those sort of things it really mm-hmm. frustrates me very much mm-hmm. so when somebody proclaims they are xyz and they are not like I, I just I can't be around those sort of people um and uh, which is why I don't really like a lot of politicians <laughs> <laughs> um and <laughs> My other value is uh, thoughtfulness, um, like mm. thinking of myself. So being thoughtful towards myself in consideration of my own needs. Uh, thoughtfulness, like thinking of other people. So in a caring and considered way and thinking of life around me in a critical race, not just accepting the status quo, digging deeper, exploring, questioning and inquiring. So thoughtfulness is a really big part of me. And I guess that stems from like, you know, initially always think about others first, um, but then also thoughtfulness, you know, the idea of actually thinking about myself and caring about myself um having those two things and like balance out well um and the third value which I'm not really quite sure and I noticed something else <laughs> it's like this radicalness <laughs> but I don't know if that's the right word um but it's this notion that I like to get to the root of something I cannot stand surface talk surface action I you know I that's I know I can't do that kind of thing I mean if we're going to talk about issue I like to try and get to the root of it and work from there up um and it's important for me to work from there otherwise I get I get quite frustrated (laughs) um and I don't really like quick fixes I don't really like you know trying to put you know a plaster on something that actually needs surgery you know so um yeah I guess those kind of those three things uh, are what are important to me and and things that I uh, liked in the people that I connect with and the second part of that question is how does your work in the academic space align to those values? Um, so the work that I'm going to be advancing forward to do is really looking at uh, Black diaspora women in white post-colonial spaces. Um, and it aligns so much to the values because it's extremely personal <laughs> for me as a Black woman who's navigating mm. those spaces. It comes from a position that I generally really want to make sense of of navigating this space and what it means for me, um, but also to extend that out to think about what does it mean for other people like me and giving space uh, to other women to really join in this journey and to really think through that and to really be thoughtful around that uh, and build strength um, through coming together and really locating that within its social and political meaning so yeah to me it's really about having that space to really um, dig deeper into something that's very personal to me but also political in the sense that it, it seeks to get to the root of some of the issues that that we speak about as black women in these white spaces and really create some something <laughs> I, you know I'm not going to oversell <laughs> what it could be um, but really mm. create something that's enriching and that really adds value to to our lives um, and that's really important to me. So you talked about adding value in something that adds value. Longer term, what would you want to accomplish or see when you finally have your PhD? Um, wow, actually, this is very deep. <laughs> what I want to do once I finish my PhD? I mean, my PhD is going to take me three to four years. Yeah, um, yeah. So, <laughs> so that's a quite a substantial amount of time. Um, 
but for me I really want to establish myself within the area you know um who you know to discuss issues based you know about race and gender within Europe and to really illuminate that that you know the issues within those spaces um and you know the ideally it would be to have my PhD published um but I also want to make research really accessible so I definitely want to make collaborations with different cultural institutions in, in terms of actually putting creating a space for these sort of issues to be discussed um, and to have my PhD as a platform of which to have a considered discussion on things. I don't really like to have surfacey discussions. I think they're kind of pointless. <laughs> so, um, I really like to delve in and have considered discussions. And I feel like it will be a very good of a pinpoint of which to um, yeah, to really dive into that in a very considered way um, across Europe, um, different places within Europe. Obviously, mainly the post-colonial ones, but that's the ones that I'm focused on. Um, but and um, what was the other part of the question? <laughs> Can you expound on your long-term goals or what do you wish to see um, in this space in, say, the next five, ten years? Um, well... That's a very interesting question because I think before when I was, I think in my early twenties, I had a lot of long-term goals um, and I, you know, accomplished a lot of things that I never thought was possible when I was younger. Like I spoke, uh, I went to Parliament and did a lot of different things, but I never, never thought that I would do. I got to feature Trice Academy Award, um, Emma Thompson in one of the videos that I worked on for a campaign. Like I got to um, present on uh, for the learning series of the BBC I got to do a lot of different things and I realized that when I had too much of a very rigid plan or rigid set, mm. set goal um, I wasn't really able to take advantage of the opportunities that came my way like I would have never have been an editor um, and known that I had a skill in terms of editing and drawing to get together different stories and putting things together and presenting it in a way that's really engaging. I would never have really realised or utilised that aspect of myself. So I guess for me right now, my goal <laughs> is to make it through my PhD, uh, but not only make it through my PhD, but to really thrive uh, in that. I really want to connect with different women across the diaspora within Europe um, and really see, you know, what, what those connections make and how that flourishes and how that grows. Um, yeah, so I guess that's that. I guess after that, I, you know, <laughs> I, I will see again where I'm at when I'm a bit more closer to the end of my PhD. Mm -hmm. I yeah, definitely have plans yeah. to, to, make, to make sure it's published. I definitely have plans to... Uh, to try and you know connect with different different cultural institutions in really raising the audience you know who actually is going to engage and talk about these things but I'm not you know so sure what's gonna happen in 10 years time <laughs> I don't really know um but all I know is that it, it has to align with me and my interests and also my values and principles uh, and, you know, not compromising on, on those things and making sure that I'm going towards something that actually adds to the greater good and, and discussion. I guess one of the things you asked is what is it that I hope to see? And I do hope that I do hope to see discussions like like this becoming more centred um, and considered and people wanting to widen the, their perspectives and widen their understandings about things that they don't really know themselves. Um, 
yeah, I guess that's something that's really important to me. Really interesting. Um, the reason why I sort of brought that question up is because I feel like um, one, I wanted obviously to understand your answer, but um, <laughs> also I feel like our society just generally kind of is like, what's your five to 10 year plan? <laughs> um, which is, so <laughs> which is kind of an old way of thinking, because I think given uh, we our generation is part of the most changed generation. I mean, so many things have changed in the last 20 years. Even COVID brought in a lot of change that nobody was expecting. It's hard for us to kind of like plan out our lives in five, 10 year timeframes mm-hmm. um, because it's not like before where, you know, they didn't have the, um, the speed of technology or the speed of, you know, well, technology and information. Um, so they could kind of be like, yeah, I know it's going to happen in five to 10 years, but I don't think we know what's going to happen. No. So, um, it's really, it's really great that you said that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> because, you know, people especially have these long, long plans. My, my cousin in particular tries to keep me to a plan. Like she has a plan for me. So, <laughs> I, um, <laughs> so I can, I can check in on her and see how I'm aligning with, with the plan that she has for me. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, I think she thinks I'm a bit too free in this sense, <laughs> But, um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I do stand by that because I would never be, be on this journey right now of going through and going forward with a PhD that I know I, I, I want mm. to do and need to do for myself. Um, and I would have been stuck to some yeah. old plan that no longer fits me and suits me. And as people, as yeah. human beings, we grow, we, you know, we change, we, we you know, our, we just change as people. And a lot, you can't, you mm-hmm. can't feel too restrictive by, you know, old plans really and do you feel like you currently are showing up as your authentic self and did you always feel like you were doing that um I feel like I am now (laughs) I it's absolutely crazy I think um something um that I spoke about before with you is is this when I, you know, when I went traveling, I was exposed to the reality of humanity and reality to how people are with each other. And um, I often just always thought about other people. And I think this came from my mom. She's a very thoughtful person. She thinks about everybody else. Um, and mm-hmm. she's always put her children, you know, before herself. And I kind of got that notion of, of love and how, and how to be, but not everyone's like that. Um, and also it's not healthy to do that hundred <laughs> percent. So I feel like now um, I'm finally at a point where I know who I am. I know what my values are. I I know what it is I want to do. And um, doing this PhD, applying for it and going forward with this goal, you know, doing this podcast are all things, all part of the parcel of what it is that I want to do right now which is really to um to illuminate and and give space to black women and to Mm. make sense of you know ourselves and to really build in strength combating you know these issues we're members of two historically oppressed groups you know based on our gender and our race and both of those things can hold us back and I really want to be on a path of you know moving forward as women, as strong black women, 
and ensuring that our lives um, is not restricted or, or constrained based on those things, which is a very hard task, but it's not something that one can do alone. Um, but it's something that I feel we can do together when we support each other and come come together. Um, so I, yeah, I feel very much aligned and I had to push past a lot of expectations about what it is that I should be doing, <laughs> where it is that I should be. And, um, you know, wanting to go back to academia and pursuing a PhD research that takes a number of years and all these kind of things um, yeah. and having to push those things to, to the side and be like, no, this is what I want to do. And this is what I have to do. And yeah, yeah so I feel there right now. <laughs> That's great. That's great to hear. Um, I guess my final question is how can people get in contact with you to know more about the work that you're doing with the work you're doing with PhD and the work that you're doing more generally in the academia? Well, I've currently set up my web, web space for all of this. <laughs> so you'll be able to find me on stephanieifill.com. That's Stephanie, then I-F-I-L-L.com. And on there, I have my explorations where I talk about uh, my upcoming PhD, Black Diaspora Women in White Postcranial Spaces, talk about my master's paper on inclusion. I talk about different understandings of freedom from the position of women. Um, but also I've written an open letter on there, which is calling Black women. And um, it's opportunity really to connect into the research that I'm doing and really to share your voice and as I said, I really want to center black women in academia and really to shift this kind of thing that we are an experience to be had, you know, we are something to be looked at, but not, nothing, nothing really to be spoken about in terms of our intellect. And I believe that we as black women, we are knowledge holders, you know, we have such great insight into the spaces in which we exist and move within. Um, so yeah, I have an open call there for black women to get involved in the project if they wish. So would love to hear from you. Perfect. Um, well, thank you for your deep, um, answers. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and to close out, Stephanie, how do you feel about that conversation? I feel like you did well interrogating me. <laughs> <laughs> you know there were so many different areas and uh for me like each question could have, could have could have been like a full discussion within itself um so it, it was interesting to dive into that um and really to speak about like, those spaces and those things so it's quite exposing I guess in that sense so uh, I hope I made sense and everybody was able to like you know really connect in but no it was good um it was good to touch on those stuff yeah so thank you Ashley <laughs> and you how did you find it yeah I feel good um I feel like you gave really great answers and they gave a lot of insights on like I said what we might be feeling but can't articulate so I think the work that you do in that space will really illuminate what we're feeling and thinking and what's inside but bringing that awareness to that not only to us as black women but to you know the to Europe at large and hopefully to the world at large. Mm, yeah, definitely. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> cool. Um, so we also, I wanted to um, sort of talk about um, sort of the feedback we've already gotten. Mm. Um, we can talk about this more in depth, but 
keep sending in your feedback to us. It's been really grand to hear all of your experiences, particularly, um, you know, when we talk about personal anecdotes, um, like with the Black and Conscious episode, um, even like we got feedback on the last episode that we did, which is about, you know, the spaces we occupy, well, the space I occupy in the wellness community, um, where one of my friends said, you know, talked about expectations and how um, she had expectations on her as coming from immigrant parents mm. um, and how she did not live up to those expectations, even though on the outside, everybody would think, oh my God, you have a great job. You're living yeah. in a big city. Everything looks great from the outside. But her parents were like, well, you should have been a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And taking that um, initiative, um, like you spoke about in this, you know, in this current episode about, you know, doing your own thing and living your authentic self and not, you know, trying to live up to your parents' expectations, society, whatever, whatever. So that was a really interesting point that she made. That's really interesting. And specifically, like, because when I asked you the question, it's something that I'm constantly having to battle, you know, juggling, 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 <laughs> judging, juggling other people's, you know, expectations <laughs> or what it is that they think I should or shouldn't be doing in my life and what it is that I should or shouldn't focus on. And everyone always has to throw in their two cents, you know, <laughs> but it gets even more, you know, it gets even more heavy when it becomes your parents' expectations, you know, um, and, and have, how do you, you yeah. know, counter that and, and move forward with that and still be true to who you are so that's really interesting to to hear yeah yeah I wanted to bring that up um because you you also touched on expectations um mm. in this episode um and how you're just kind of not living up to or you're not living for the expectations of others so the fact yeah. that you have overcome that um is really um inspiring oh thank you <laughs> Thank you. It's still, it's still an everyday process. Um, and it's still something, even with doing this PhD, people still have a lot of comments like, why would you focus on black women? Or or why would you, you know, do it this way? Or why don't you look at this? Or why don't you look at that? It's like, are you going to be spending three to, three to four years or five years <laughs> diving into this? Yeah, thing? exactly. Is it me? You know? <laughs> So let's wrap up this episode. And don't forget to send in more of your feedback to us. You can either DM us on Instagram or visit our website and send us an email. Um, and please do share and with you know people who you think would benefit, particularly Black women, but mm. anyone who you think would benefit from the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Please do share with those who you feel would benefit from this conversation. And if you know you're also experiencing issues surrounding expectations or if anything in this conversation resonated with you, we'll love to hear from you. All right, until next time, speak to you soon. Bye.
Any views or opinions represented in this podcast are personal and do not represent or are connected to any persons, institutions, organizations, or companies unless explicitly stated.